Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. COVID-19 has pushed most countries into various degrees of lockdown in an effort to save lives. But what effect has the pandemic had on livelihoods? Right now, many countries in the world are focused on containing the virus and caring for those who fall ill. But in China and most OECD countries which were hit earlier, they are now emerging from confinement and restarting their economies. Now, what about jobs? During confinement, job protection schemes in OECD countries supported one quarter of workers through things like short-time work schemes, topped-up unemployment benefits, and paid sick leave. How long can that last for, and what steps should governments take next? I'm Clara Young, and I'm virtually joined by Jacques Vandenbroek. Jacques is the CEO and executive chair of the executive board of Randstad, which is a global leader in human resources services. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, great to be here. The OECD projects unemployment in OECD countries to be 9.4% at the end of 2020, and well over 7% the year after. What kind of jobs are being lost? Yeah, well, you should, you should do uh, also look at pre-COVID, if you will. The projections we then had was we would be short of people mainly due, due to the demographics. Yeah, that has changed. The jobs that were uh, most at danger of disappearing were repetitive white-collar jobs. So most people might think it's blue-collar jobs, but actually that's not what our research shows. So it was very much with insurance company, government bodies, banks, repetitive white-collar jobs. At the moment, to COVID, the most prevalent is, is, is the US. That's where you see where jobs are disappearing. And that is mostly uh, bottom end of the labor market, uh, retail, fast food, restaurants, those kind of jobs. In Europe, it still yeah, remains to be seen, of course, uh, what is going to happen. If you look at sectors, however, then the sectors which are most hit by the crisis is airlines, automotive, events, leisure, hospitality. Less hit is call contact center type of jobs. Anything related to online, so mainly logistics, not related to automotive, but anything else. And then sort of the usual suspects, by the way, which is uh, healthcare and education, which are structural, you know, demanders of jobs. And that's where we will see a lot of people uh, that are being needed. And lastly, technology. Technology at the high end, but also technology at the low end. Those jobs, that's not a sector in itself, but those jobs you could do from home. So we see in our business that those jobs are far less hit than yeah, more physical jobs that you need to perform on site. If I understand correctly, if we're looking at the jobs that are being shed, would it be correct in, in saying that because of the pandemic, we're seeing lots of job loss in services industry, entertainment, airline industry, that which is rather new because of the pandemic. And we're also seeing a continuation perhaps of the job loss that predated the pandemic, which is in repetitive white collar uh, work, white yeah. collar jobs? Yeah, well, you should uh, make a distinction between several sectors. Um, right. So there, there are two sectors which I think need to reinvent itself. Uh, the first one being airlines and, and travel, because I do think that people, because of this, uh, will, you know, sort of re, yeah, reconsider their means of travel and the frequency of travel but also automotive. And automotive, 
I think we should also take into account that certainly in Europe, uh, when we went into this crisis, uh, we were already, certainly our business was already in negative territory. Uh, our German business and Germany as an economy, one in eight jobs related to automotive, was already quite in decline. Um, yeah, and, and, and there's a long list of things happening to automotive, right? Self-driving cars, electrical cars, uh, car sharing, and that sort of thing. And certainly the German automotive sector was a bit late to this party. So they need to reinvent itself and yeah, time will tell what that means for, for jobs. Other industries will, will bounce back. Might take a while. Eh? So events, uh, leisure, restaurants. I think at the end of the day, you should really um, yeah, ideally have a vaccine um, and for this to fully rebound. But I don't think this, this sector needs to long-term reinvent itself. It's just a part of people recreating and that sort of thing. But it's quite clear that we've, we, we are, or we have already moved from a health crisis into an economic one. Now, we've been talking about jobs, but what kinds of people are losing jobs? Women are particularly hard hit. What about other parts of the population that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, I don't think you should particularly look at the specific target group, so to say. You should look at the jobs that people are having. And okay. As always, certainly in Europe, there's a long debate about fixed jobs and job security. But at the end of the day, we don't believe in that. There's only one security, uh, and, and that is your employability. Um, so um, we think that, yeah, jobs might disappear, but you need to look at your, your potential, your employability as a person. So let's say airlines. Uh, there's a lot of technicians in airlines. They'll easily find something else. If you look at the digital shifts, I always say, you know, if, if you want to have a secure education, uh, you should you either work with your hands, with your head, or with your personality. Because those typically human traits will take a long time for artificial intelligence to sort of take the job, as opposed to the white-collar repetitive one. Uh, of course, if you are now you know, working in an airline, in an administrative job, you should seriously think about reskilling and, and fast. Right. When you talk about, for example, work involving your personality, so we're hearing a lot about empathy, yeah. but then we're seeing such a sudden shift towards remote working. The two seem to clash. Are you seeing, do you know about technologies that are being developed that can help with the conveying of empathy and personality and emotion over distance when you're not face-to-face? Yeah, well, fortunately, it's not technology. It's us as people uh, that need to adjust to the new normal. So in the old world, you, you started with a phone or an email. You did a follow-up. You would then go to the client physically on his premises. So that would take you like two hours, eh, depending on where you are. Uh, in this world, like we're doing now, you can easily replace that by four times the amount of calls. But it is a new technique. Also for myself, I've had many people that I met for the first time, including you, um, but I think, you know, you can connect, you can connect like this, which I think makes the world smaller. And I think there's a lot of opportunities. There. Um, in my introduction, I mentioned, um, uh, about the job protection schemes that governments quickly put together during yeah. confinement. Um, just to, to follow up on that, do you think that there's a, a bit of a, false sense of security right now because of these schemes um what's happening below the surface in the labor market because yep. 
soon we will be coming out of that and countries are doing it at different speeds. True, that's a good question. Um, I think, first of all, I think uh, uh, most uh, governments have reacted really well. So I've been for a long time in this business and I also lived through the 209 uh, financial crisis um, and there was no government support. So as a company, um, you know, we, we really had to refer to firing people fairly quickly. That's not the case now. But in a way, the only thing that a government support scheme does for you as an individual employee is give you time to reflect on your future. So just as an example, uh, we in this country, we've had around 10,000 people attempts being supported by the government. And we reached out to them individually uh, to see how they were doing, if they found something else, if they were confident that they would remain or they would get back to the same job or uh, that they were not so confident and that a reskilling or a job change was required. Out of those a little under 10,000, 5,000 people said, well, I'll wait and see. And that's the worst you can do uh, because at the end of the day, you are responsible as an employee to, you know, to take care of yourself uh, and not wait for your employer to take a decision. So, yeah, I, I urge everybody who's currently at home in a government support scheme to really, really look, take a hard look at yourself, at your employer, at your capabilities and start acting and not wait for anybody, government or your employer to come to you because that might be too late. And retraining and upskilling is a very big part of being active on that front. What, what would you say are the priority skills that people should be working on? Well, again, I talked a bit about uh, capabilities that are and going to be in need. Eh? Uh, so those are technical skills, interpersonal skills. Um, yeah, but the, the sectors like, like healthcare, uh, education. So we as an industry uh, can show people where the demand is going to be. And then, you know, it's up to you, but we help them. Maybe it's good to talk a bit about reskilling um, because there's a lot of talk about lifelong learning and that's all good. But in real life, people are reluctant to reskill. That is just human nature. So the first question is always, and we learn this from our outplacement business because in our outplacement business, there's no choice. So your job is lost. What we first do is we put people in front of a screen and say to them, you know, here, look at some job sites and go look for a job that appeals to you. And then we sort of virtually watch over the shoulder. Many people start looking for the job they had, which is partly good news because apparently that's a job you like, but you felt comfortable. But that job's not there, right? Um, so you need to do something else. So the first question is, do I need to reskill? Then you have a conversation and that sort of thing. And then once the sort of the mindset is there that you need to reskill, then of course the second question is okay so looking at me at myself and what i'm good at not so good at what i like what i don't like what do we need to do what's your advice and the third one is okay once that's all done can you take care of me because that is quite it is in a way a pretty traumatic experience and you want someone you know shoulder to shoulder with you to handle that having said all that that is a big appeal to the labor market going forward because if you look at the way, call it labor market policies and unemployment institutions are being managed, it is mostly public, uh, it lacks data, 
and it lacks, uh, uh, let's say, the, man, the, the, the manpower to, to help uh, people on an individual basis. And that's why we are advocating public-private partnership, the use of data. Because as an industry, eh, uh, the HR industry is the biggest employer in the world, we know where the demand, and we do have our own consultants with the empathy to help people with this, you know, quite massive change. So, indeed, we do need the data to guide people in their change. Is there enough resources in terms of career guidance and counseling advice, do you think, both public if, and private? In, you know, in no. Well, if you would add it all up and you would, put, you would take the public actors and the private actors uh, and the availability of data, yes, there's enough. So let me, let me paint a bit how I see this. And it's mostly on a country level. Country is okay. most relevant. So we know in this country, but in many more countries, where the demand is and is going to be. So we can paint an overall picture of, let's say, this country, 10 million workforce. Demand is going to be there and there and there and there. We also can paint the workforce as a whole. What kind of jobs are they doing? And then on a sort of a macro level, you can uh, sort of define the gap. Once you've done that, you've got an educational demand. And then again, systems change. Educational institutions don't educate for the demand. They educate for, yeah, people just want to have an education. That's also a change. So there needs to be way more on-demand training, way more education towards the labor market. And then the third level is, okay, how do you get people there? And that is training people in, in a way like we do in our branches every day to take care of people. It might take weeks, might take weeks of training, going back, uh, training on the job, partly in classrooms or digital. In the US, for example, most of the jobs are being created in urban areas, whereas unemployment is higher in rural, former industrial areas. So you need to find a way to either move people or create digital infrastructure so that people can perform jobs where they live. So it's quite a massive undertaking. The OCD in our employment outlook, which has just come out, finds that two out of five workers work from home during confinement and they upskilled really very quickly. And I think a lot of people are feeling quite proud of themselves. But is being able to use you know, video conferencing platforms like we're doing now, is it such a game changer? Are we moving forward fast enough to things like incorporating machine learning or analytics? Yeah, well, again, uh, pre-COVID, we did, uh, we talked about lo people losing their job, but also for the people that kept their job, we said that for 60, 70% uh, of people, their job content would change. Uh, and, 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 you know, COVID is an accelerator, which is good. Uh, just take one example. I've said to my people, I will not do any physical uh, signing of papers. So even governments are going to, you know, uh, all sorts of digital uh, stuff, which is good. Yeah, it's good, but it's also not good because people also lose a job. Then we go back to the repetitive white-collar jobs. But it's good from a, you know, government is cost. So if you work with less cost, then it's good for a country, right? So there is, there is a speeding up because of all of this, because we've seen that it works. I have also seen research that many managers have been reluctant to do this, uh, reluctant to work from home. If you've got more of a, yeah, sort of a command and control management, this is something else. 
At the same time, I do expect a sort of a flattening of organizations, which again will speed up job losses in these repetitive middle management, repetitive white collar jobs. So again, a reset. Uh, so, you know, please, 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 even if you're in a job, even if you've been working for 20 years, even if you like the job, take a very holistic approach at what you can do, compare with the labor market to see if you're safe. Among the skills that you talked about that we need to look at, focus on for retraining, we talked about a little bit about empathy, but we also, you also mentioned manual. And I'm wondering from a training point of view, are we using things like augmented reality simulators to work on more manual skills? Yeah, we are. Last week in Paris, in our engineering business, and I was in a virtual reality setting uh, where they showed me how I could do uh, maintenance on machines. Because uh, in this specific setting, they cannot turn off the machines uh, because, you know, that's too much productivity loss and sort of a chemical way of working. So it's always at work. So how do you train people? And uh, I studied law, so I'm very technical. <laughs> but I work with my head and my hands a bit, so and my personality, so yeah, I'm okay. But I was in there, and I could perform all these tasks. Uh, so that is happening. Uh, again, it will speed up, and there's been a lot of online training already. We even got a, uh, an online outplacement service. was really, you know, in a way, sitting down. You lost your job. It's almost therapeutic to start with. And uh, we do it online company came out of our innovation fund and gaining a lot of traction yeah you train people you, you, you bolster them in their skills and their self-confidence and you can do a lot online yeah even though the OECD is clear that any downturn in global trade will hamper recovery we do hear talk about the manufacturing of especially vital goods like medical supplies coming closer to home onshoring countries have been spooked by how vulnerable their supply chains are. So given this, what do you see in your crystal ball for the jobs market in terms of manufacturing? <laughs> I'm just looking around for my crystal ball, but I can't find it. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, pre-COVID, it was already clear uh, because of call it the trade wars that you would be very vulnerable if your whole manufacturing base was in China. So already in those days, we saw a lot of companies trying to reconfigure that. So that's important. Also because of wages. Eh? So certainly in the south, uh, east of China, wages going up. So, you know, we, we already saw a bit of a move towards Southeast Asia. Uh, so that's happening. What, what's also happening uh, is that because of everything we now discussed, wage arbitration becomes less of an issue because in services, you, you can do things uh, quicker. It's not so much much uh, the, the, the cost of an employer, an employee, sorry. So let me take uh, the example of contact centers. So if you looked at a contact center, of which there are many in the Philippines and in India and that sort of countries, uh, because of wage arbitration, honestly speaking, uh, and you, you, you saw hundreds of people doing a relatively small one-dimensional task. If you look at a contact center today, it's not a call center anymore. A lot has been done through virtual uh, and AI and that sort of thing by the consumer themselves before they enter into physical contact, let's say, uh, with a worker. So therefore, these calls, contact centers, way less people, uh, more complicated tasks, uh, and therefore productivity also in sort of uh, produced value goes up and wage arbitration is less of an issue. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I would see a lot of those movements, uh, which for example, a country like Europe would mean that we need to be proactive in immigration. Uh, immigration is a hot, hot potato. Um, you, got, you got like social immigration because of wars and that sort of thing. You also have economic immigration where as Canada or Australia or Singapore, you define an agenda for people that you want and you, you, know, you put out the red carpet because it's needed. So I think the biggest mistake we can make is forget the underlying tendencies in the labor market where shortages will again come up. But at the same time, if we don't reskill very proactively public-private, people will be, on the one hand, unemployed, 8, 9, 10%. And on the other hand, we have scarcity for certain programs. So that's something we need to avoid. And again, through massive reskilling, taking into account that people are not out of themselves will flock to these possibilities. Randstad is a part of the Safely Back to Work Coalition. And we are starting to talk about going back to the workplace, for some people anyway. In the OECD's most recent uh, employment outlook, it's reported that half of all jobs involve people regularly interacting with each other. And we also know that besides these face-to-face interactions, there have been places like meatpacking plants that have been hotspots for COVID-19 outbreaks. What are the most important back-to-work safety guidelines that you would emphasize? Yeah, what is quite specific about uh, the the meat industry in this case is that you need to, in a way, enlarge the health and safety protocol all the way to where people live. There is, you know, a shortage of places to live. So people, these people live in relatively small apartments. Uh, Then they go with a van with a lot of people and then they go to work. So those are three different uh, areas and and all three need to be taken into account. If you talk about, uh, let's say the workplace, then it is totally possible, even in these situations, to work with partitions, including testing, quick isolation. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of cost, protective material. And if you don't do that, you run risks. That is unfortunately what I see happening here. What are the three most important steps that governments should take in their policy regarding jobs? What should they be? Yeah, in a, in a way, if you look at the current systems that governments have uh, for unemployment benefits, unemployment handling, and you know, public uh, labor administration, those systems uh, cannot cope with what, what's going to happen. That was already the case, by the way, because you already saw in quite a few markets in Europe that on the one hand, you would have relatively low unofficial unemployment, but at the same time, quite big groups that didn't find their way. Pretty much uh, what I said earlier, um, you know, don't get me wrong here, but public employment is very much related to an administrative way of working. And I'm not blaming anybody, but it's not the the use of data. So our company has like 200 million people in our database. And and we think through technology over time, we can stay in contact with them. You can map all those qualities that these people have. So we need to combine. eh? There's there's public labor market data, private labor market data. There's people that that are currently at work with their capabilities. People are not at work. So you need to create this massive data infrastructure. And then, yeah, the the good news is you you asked me this. uh, There's enough people also in public employment agency compared with us and the data that we can make this happen, but it's a total revamp. So that's one. 
Good news Could again. I just stop you right there? Could, could I ask you just to clarify, when you say we can look at the public unemployment figures, but you're saying, but it doesn't take into account a large number of people who have lost their way. What do you mean by that? There's a lot of people that, that, that wanted to get in the labor market uh, or wanted to work more, but, but the, this, the, you know, they, they can't find their way, so to say. Okay. Uh, so you need to proactively, you know, take them by the hand. Right. So, to say. so that, that, that's the first one. Uh, the second one is, is to take a sort of a longer term approach together with educational institutions, which again is public private, to define the horizon for a country. First of all, the people you got, the people, the jobs you need, the capabilities you need. Can we do this through massive reskilling programs? Uh, and or, funny enough, do we also need immigration on top of that? Uh, because that was the case, and unfortunately, I think that will still be the case uh, going forward. The third one is probably that many, I hope, on the one hand, that many governments uh, will create investment agendas eh, on infrastructure, on digital infrastructure, on green. That's good news. But the bad news is these people are not available. Well, they are quantitatively, but they're not qualitatively. So if you define such a program, then by all means, make it together with us. I think we're happy to work as an HR industry to support a big chapter to capabilities and, and necessity and capabilities. So that will help. If you don't do that, again, massive unemployment, massive demand, and they don't meet. Right. So first point, merging public and private data about yep. the workforce. Second yep. point, knowing how to target education and retraining and third yeah. point investment yeah sounds good well thank you for speaking to me jacques my pleasure and thanks for listening to oecd podcasts i'm clara young to find out more about what we've been talking about have a look at the oecd's latest employment outlook To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud.com/OECD.